Welcome to Don't Box Me In on TalkZone.com, the show that features conversations with people from all walks of life, talking about their extraordinary experiences and inspirational messages. Now, here's your host, Lana Reed. Welcome back. Welcome back to another installment of Don't Box Me In. You know, uh, on the show, I've had quite a few guests who have been through some challenging times in life. And they've come out on the other side to brighter days. I share these stories with people, uh, with my audience, because a lot of times when we go through struggles in life, we tend to feel like we are the only one with problems or that no one else can understand our pain. But the reality is there are so many others out there going through exactly what you are experiencing, if not more painful. My guest today has an amazing story of starting off life with challenges, but overcoming them. And um, for the past week, I have been sitting here trying to figure out some sort of clever way to, you know, introduce him. Uh, but I'm coming up short. So I think it's best for me to just let him t- begin to tell you his story and who he is and about his life. So with that, Mr. Donald Eubank, I want to welcome you to Don't Box Me In today. And I thank you for opening up to my audience about your life. Well, thank you so much, Lana. It's a privilege to be on the show. I haven't listened before, and I thoroughly enjoyed uh, the show, and I appreciate you having me on. Oh, no, no. It's my pleasure. Truly my pleasure. So, Donald, can you tell me, uh, let's start off and see, where exactly were you born at? Well, I was born at Maxwell Field Air Force Base in Montgomery, Alabama, on August the 18th, 1948, and... uh I grew up around the Montgomery area and also some of the other Air Force bases that my father, who was a, uh, Air Force man, uh, we traveled around to the different uh, projects they had for the Air Force people. Okay, so you like me. I'm an Air Force brat as well. <laughs> <laughs> so you have brothers and sisters? Uh, yeah, I have a brother who's deceased about four years ago. He uh, passed away from the uh, exposure to Agent Orange back in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And I have two sisters who live in the Hackerberg area, Hackerberg, Alabama area at this present time. And I'm living right down the road in Hamilton, Alabama. Okay. Okay. So Alabama has <laughs> become home for everybody. So um, yeah. growing up, so growing up, your parents, uh, military family, uh, were your parents typical role model parents growing up? Well, really, uh, I would like to say that as a child growing up, I have these little flashes of little memories, uh, like uh, breaking your tooth on a kitty car or going and getting your foot sewed up at the Air Force Base. Uh, different scenes pop in your mind. And as I was growing up, we uh, moved around quite a bit, and there was a lot of little experiences that um, that I remember. Uh, let me know, and I'll tell you uh, and kind of dramatically uh, grow up with it, okay? Okay. Um, there was a place, uh, one of the Air Force bases, it, had, it was my railroad track, and I think it was up near Gunnersville or something back, um, it had to be in the 50s. And my brother and sister and I were in the apartment, there was an old guy who sang a song, you told to cut the mustard, you know how these memories go. And mm-hmm. there was a little baby, there was a little baby, uh, Charles, that was his name. He was in a bassinet, and I woke up one morning and went over there. And the bassinet was closed, and the cover was over the baby's head. And mm-hmm. I pushed it back, and it was blue. And I mm-hmm. went over and grabbed my mom and dad out of bed, and they didn't seem to really be interested in checking it out. And then the police came, and they hid 
me and my brother and my oldest sister, youngest sister, or, or not my youngest, but my next one in line, my next, my first sister, in the closet told us that we we said a word that they would they would hurt us or something. You know, I can't remember the exact words, but we knew mm-hmm. not to say nothing. And so that was dismissed. And then um, we moved from there. And uh, the next recollection I remember when I was about five or six, maybe seven, is that we lived on a railroad track uh, next to a black family who lived with there. And thank God she was there. Um, mm-hmm. I would do things around her house that she would she would give me food, you know. And she was a very nice lady. And um, I remember um, that we were all, there was no furniture, just a mattress on the floor, all those kids, no air conditioning and nothing. And it was right by the railroad track, very dusty. And uh, Mom had uh, uh, left. She often left. Uh, it was her. They were alcoholics. Both of them were alcoholic, chronic. She would be gone for weeks and days. And uh, it was my job as the oldest that age to make sure there was food and stuff so anyway she left and i heard the door slam and i got up to walk into the kitchen to see because that was the only door that wasn't barricaded and uh, i noticed uh the assisting uh, sound and i walked over to the stove and she had turned all the eyes and opened the door of the oven and turned all the eyes on and i said she's trying to kill us so mm. then at that point i said to myself i will never trust never trust my mama with anything i eat or anything that is around there and keep my eye on her. And I went next door and told the lady and she called the police and they took us away from there. And, um, my father and grandmother came and got us and took us out to a farm behind, um, Maxwell Field. I think Mr. Campbell owned the farm and there was no other residents around that area. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we were there and, um, all through that period of life and everything, uh, from sitting outside of, uh, uh, Five Points in Montgomery. Uh, on, on the sidewalk while my mother was in there trying to get something to drink and pick up a boyfriend while dad was overseas. And I experienced a lot of horror things that, that, that really the most kids should never see. And I hope there's not a lot of kids listening now, but you know, I would have to sit right there by the bed while she would be in bed with a stranger and discussing things, I guess. And mm-hmm. I knew what was, I knew what was going on. And then uh, when dad would come home, she would pull us kids to the side and tell us that to go into all, every, all the men's pockets and take out all their wallets and change them, bring them to her. So this mm-hmm. was not a very good role model on it. You know what I mean? It was very not. So I really, everything is like in here and now, like with a lot of animals that live right now. And at that time I was living from moment to moment trying to figure out how to survive that. Wow. Wow. That's a lot for uh, a young kid. You were like maybe seven at this time? Yeah, I was adopted at 10 years old, thank God. But before then, I had to visit uh, two or three foster homes and in the juvenile detention center for several, uh, I guess, about a month and a half, where they lock you in a room because they had to keep control of you. And there was a lot of kids there. So they put Mm -hmm. me and my sisters and brothers in a room and, you know, give us our meals downstairs, but we were timed like five minutes, you know, to eat and get back up there. And that was kind of a strange experience. Wow. So I want to ask if now that you're an adult, when your mother was leaving you guys for weeks at a time, do you recall or have you figured out where where was she going? What was she doing? Well, uh, yeah, uh, I was somehow smart enough to know was she coming back or was she not coming back. So with her stuff still there, I knew she'd be coming back because her habits had been, she would go out on a drinking spree 
and she would get good and drunk, and she would sober up or run out of money or run out of resources, and she would come home and feel bad about it and start trying to make it up, you know. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. This was this was her, her uh, way of operating, uh, or either that or one of the other family would come by there, uh, uh, uncle or somebody would come by and see that she was gone and go look her, hunt her up and make sure she got back. But uh, it was it was always she was always chasing the bottle and mm-hmm. whatever whatever means necessary to get that. Okay, and so during this time, your father's not there because he's being he's stationed someplace away from the family. That's is that my understanding? Yeah, that, a lot. That's understandable. He uh, he come home a few times when uh, the Air Force brought him home because of the problems, legal problems surrounding his wife and and us kids. And they would bring him home periodically just to uh, move us or get us into a place of safety or, or something of that nature. And during all this time, uh, we moved to Elba, Alabama, where I had an uncle who had a farm. And that was interesting, picking cotton uh, mm-hmm. as a, before I was eight. And uh, then we lived in the beer joint, which is on Clay and Dickerson, which an interstate goes through now in Montgomery. Everybody from that area knows what I'm talking about. And we lived in the beer joint. There was a house built on the beer joint, and um, that was also an interesting, uh, interesting um, chapter uh, uh, in my life. You know, uh, there, there was so uh, that went on. not to interrupt you. Not to interrupt you, Don. You said you lived in a, a beer joint, like a liquor house. Well, there was a house, and on uh, I would say uh, half of the house was converted into a beer joint, and then the house kind of a. Uh, 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 I guess it kind of uh, went around the side of it so that the beer joint was like inside the house, but the, you had exterior entrances. And uh, at that time, that's where uh, my father and my grandmother opened it up, and they later on turned it over to somebody else when he went in the military. But uh, at that time, they um, we were allowed at that age to go in there and, and hang out uh, as kids because the, the people who fed the hogs would bring donuts on the back of their truck. And we'd go out there and, and swipe a couple of donuts to eat, you know. And mm-hmm. uh, and uh, I would go in there and listen to the music because I loved music. And uh, everybody back in my family was always musicians and sang with a lot of folks uh, in the Montgomery area. You know, there were a lot of talent down in the South, and they all loved music, you know. Mm. It seems to me before you were seven, eight years old, uh, you and your brothers and sisters were exposed to a lot of adult elements yeah we were and uh we we were exposed to it and we uh i admit as a kid i I tried to do things that 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 i wasn't old enough to do and of course i didn't have any success but i i didn't know the difference you know Mm -hmm. so you know being around beer joints and uh, stuff i mean were you dabbling and drinking as well as a seven eight year old or just you knew not to do that well i i i never did it as a kid because i always saw the violence that came from everybody i'm sure it wasn't everybody but from my perspective of watching the people when somebody was drinking i knew right away you don't trust that person Mm -hmm. i don't trust today i don't trust anybody drinking anybody doing drugs anybody on um any kind of medication that pulls them out of the normal. And mm-hmm. I didn't understand this back then, but I knew to stay away from that. 
And if I did get close to it, to very be very cautious. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Okay, so we're going to back back up. So it's seven o'clock, uh, seven years old. Uh, you had the incident where your mother left all the gas on and tried to kill you and your siblings. Yeah. So then you have, um, I guess maybe uh, social services. Your uncle steps in and removes you guys from the family, is and you go to foster care. Okay, that we were on the Campbell's farm then. That was the last place that we uh, had lived prior to going to the juvenile detention center. They picked me up. Somehow, somebody, I don't know who exactly, called and said that we were out there uh, and there was no one supervising us. And uh, the old man who lived in the house, Mr. Cowell, had passed away. And the only thing in his house were rattlesnakes, so we didn't go in there. So we mm-hmm. were in a trailer, and we were eating uh, mud pies at that time. And, mm. uh, you know, yeah, and my sister was full of um, uh, all parasites and everything. She mm-hmm. was still a baby. And they took us and took her to the hospital, and they got us all to where we were healthy enough to go into the detention center. They gave us physicals and dewormed us and all the things you got to do to get a kid out of the woods, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, and and. And and then they had us in the juvenile detention center, and then they would. Um, I went to court uh, one day. I remember I went to court. My grandmother was outside. My uh, father was outside, and some uncles and aunts and all of them were out there trying to get us released to them. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, so the judge uh, uh, he. Um, well, the, well, I tell you, but I saw them as I was going into the courtroom. You know, I did see them outside the, the door that we were being entered from. I looked mm-hmm. over there, but law, I tell you, I turned my back on them. Mm-hmm. I don't know why I did that. I turned my, I did not want to go back there. I turned mm-hmm. my back on my whole family. Mm-hmm. But, you know, mm-hmm. and I walked in the courtroom and the judge made his determination. I don't know what he said. I couldn't understand it, but I did know that something better had to come of this, you know. Something better had to be happening, and so we, uh, we, my brother and I were sent down to um, L- uh, Pine Level, Alabama, to uh, a DeBose family or some family down there who already had three other boys uh, that she was foster caring, mm-hmm. and we were there for about two, about a year, I guess, year and a half. My sisters went to uh, Lampkin's house, which was in Montgomery near the Coliseum, and they lived there, and they were very nice people. Uh, and, 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 and we're able to give, uh, them, uh, uh, some things to, to, to kind of educate them a little bit and kind of treat them like kids should be treated growing up and with the values and things they needed, you know? Gotcha. Gotcha. All right, Donna, we're going to take a quick break right now, but when uh, we come back, I'm going to talk more about your time uh, with your new family in foster care. Stay tuned. I'll be right back. Welcome back to Don't Box Me In on TalkZone.com. Here's your host, Lana Reed. Hello, welcome back. I have been speaking with Mr. Donald Eubank about his life. Before the break, uh, we were uh, at the point where he had uh, just arrived in foster care. And uh, you said something uh, earlier about uh, the whole court process that I I just kind of wanted to touch on. And you mentioned that. As a young child, you turned your back on your family uh, going into court, but you didn't understand why. You, I'm just going to kind of make a stretch here and say that I think kids 
even though they can't maybe articulate it, they understand a lot. And there might have been some anger, you know, from for I know as my family, as people who are supposed to love and care for me, you saw all of this coming, but you did nothing. So I'm upset with you for some sort of way for allowing this to happen to me. And, uh, you know, quite possibly maybe that's why there was some anger towards your family at that time. But at that time, I was living in the moment, reliving the situation. At that time, I did not understand why. Uh, You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Uh, In doing inner child workshops, a lot of times children suppress uh, their feelings and everything, and they, they, they act out in different ways. And uh, my way of saying that, just like you said, that I was disappointed, I was embarrassed. Why didn't you fight for me? Why didn't you try to help me? Why didn't you feed me? Why didn't you clothe me? Why did you treat me the way you treated me? This is my way of saying I, 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 re- I reject that, and I yeah. turned my head, my back. Yeah. So you, you, um, you get uh, into foster care. So what is your time like with your, your new foster care family? Well, I was excited, and so was my brother. He was about two, a year and a, eleven months younger than me, and we were excited, you know. And we got to the Bose house, uh, which is right off thirty-one and uh, in Pine Level, and and uh, she was she seemed nice, but she 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 appeared to be a, a little military, and by that I mean she was one who threw out orders, and uh, it was no, uh, there was not much emotional. Um, love and caring. I didn't feel loved and cared for. I felt like I was one of the troops in, in the house of six. Mm-hmm. Uh, see, six, yeah, six or seven, six. And uh, I'm being the oldest, and I, of course, I guess I became a corporal. I don't know. It was up to me to make sure everybody did what she said do. But uh, it was a, a standard day during the regular uh, week. Uh, we would uh, get up, eat breakfast, and then we would put outside and we had hose and bags for pecans if it was in season or uh, bags to pick uh, groceries and stuff like that or chop down old uh, plants that she needed chopped down. But everything uh, during the day was more or less we were outside. Uh, mm-hmm. And if it was bad weather, of course, we were inside on the back porch or in the house where she designated for us to play. So that's, that's if you did something wrong like I did, uh, she had made some uh, apple, no, peanut butter, uh, 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 pecan pies. Mm-hmm. And and I saw it, and I was hungry. And <laughs> it was my bad, my bad. But I grabbed that whole pecan pie, and I ate the whole thing. <laughs> well, she looked at me, and I didn't feel very good. And she said, well, come in here. I'll give you something. And she gave me two tablespoons of castor oil. Oh, my. And it took me to age 18 before I would eat another piece of pecan pie. <laughs> but, Learned but, a lesson on that one. Yeah, there was a few scary times. And one of the scary times was she was gone and the thunderstorm came up and we couldn't get in the house. And we ran to the, the local store uh, crying and everything because we were scared. Uh, I remember my uncle told me uh, back on uh, Uncle Luther's farm that when it started thunder and lightning that God was sending down the... Uh, they, uh, his rain on you, uh, uh, raft on you because you'd done something wrong or you're told a lie. And so the uh-huh. immediate thing we thought about, here comes God after us. Now, what did we do wrong? 
And so, you know, you still hold on to those things until you learn a little bit different. We weren't quite old enough. We were still under 10, and we didn't quite know exactly how to take God yet. So I wasn't introduced to him, except they did take us to church, but I still didn't register yet. Wow. So while she's gone from the house, she forced you guys to stay outside until an adult was home? Yeah, we were we were locked out outside the house, and we were to stay in the backyard or in the field until she came home. I don't know where she went. She didn't have a car, so one of her relatives had to come and get her, or she would walk up to the store or something, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the worst memory, which I did, by the way, all these people I'm talking to you about today, I mm-hmm. have as an adult gone back and confronted. I wanted you to know that up front. But Miss mm-hmm. uh, uh, Bo, she... Uh, uh, it was Christmas time, and the and the welfare department or the uh, human services came by and brought boxes and boxes of toys for us, you know. And mm-hmm. I was so excited because this would be a real Christmas. This would be one where I got something that was from a store, you know. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that it's not that but it, kids. It means something, you know. It True. meant something to me to get something from the store, something that was real shiny, something that I could play with, something that uh, would make me laugh and smile. And so mm-hmm. I, I saw these boxes. You know, I peeked through these little these little keyholes. Mm-hmm. I, I became quite an eye spy guy back in those days. <laughs> and and I saw all the toys. She would show her what she had and everything. So the next day, when uh, Christmas Day was, I was the first one out of bed. Of course, I got her out of bed and everybody else. And mm-hmm. so she walked in there and she handed me a little bitty motorcycle cop. Mm-hmm. which I, I'm sure I was grateful for, but I didn't feel like it at the time. And she gave uh, my brother a little mail truck, and the other boys got a little something, and the boxes were gone. And there was a big room on the back of the porch that we were not allowed to go into, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, uh, they were all back there, okay. I, mm-hmm. I won't tell you my secret, but they were all back there. And anyway, her nephews and nieces came two days later, and they sent us uh, way out in the fields, over in the corner of the field, all of us. And uh, so I looked and watched, and they were loading the boxes up, taking them away. And I did confront her about that many years later. So but I the, thought that was the, so horrible. The, so the gifts that social services gave to give to you and your brothers and the other foster kids, she gave to her own nieces and nephews? Correct. I wish wow. it wouldn't have been that way. I wish it wouldn't have been, but it was that way. Wow. No doubt in my mind, you know. Wow. So was she sending you guys to school at this time as well, or did you just do work around the house for her? Well, there came a time when I had to go to school, and I was the only one who went to school. And so I can't really tell you how old it was, but um, I went to a real real school that had three teachers, and each teacher had two grades. Okay, like first, second, third, fourth, and et cetera. And there was only sixth grade to school, so I meant three teachers. And so I went to school, and I learned about Dick and Jane and the Friendly Village and painted and took my naps on a towel. And when they came to give shots, I hid under the building. They had a hard time getting me out for that vaccination, you know. But I, uh, uh, you know, I was very small then, underweight, very small for my age, and I could get around like that. But, um, uh, yeah, I did go to school. I don't remember progressing because later on, I remember having to go back through the school and start in the same grade I started. Didn't want to start it down there, so I must not have been smart enough to learn nothing. I don't know. 
Well, you know, you had a lot going on that most kids shouldn't have to deal with. So it's kind of hard to focus on school if you're trying to figure out how you're going to feed you and your siblings and and take care of some adult house. So, I mean, that's all understandable. Now, Miss yeah. um, Bo's house, did, was that the only foster care home you were in? Well, uh, after she got sick, some reason she got sick, and so they moved us over to the Lampkins where my sister was, so we were reunited. Okay. And we, and we stayed there for a, a few months. I can't say a bunch, but a few months. But during that time, I got a real bicycle with training mm-hmm. wheels on it, and I got to play with all the chickens they had, and I got to uh, go to school again and uh, be in a different grade, and my sister was in a different grade then. And my brother's in a different grade. So we were going to school. And then uh, my real father at the time came to school and found my sister and tried to, to abduct her from the school. And so they had to immediately whip us out of that school and put us somewhere else. And for the life of me, I can't remember what school it was. But mm-hmm. I do remember that there were some there were some strange families, like every two or three days we were moving somewhere to, and I can't remember the faces because they weren't imprinted on my mind at that age. All I knew is my father had come after my sister, and they had to move all of us. So the next step was they were looking at adopted parents for us. Okay. So do you now know why it is your father came for just your sister? Well, because uh, he re- he was he was outside parked, and he and she was the first one of all of us that we saw that he that that he saw. Okay, and that's uh-huh. the only uh, explanation I have, and I won't I won't dip into to anything else because uh, oh. you know I don't know. But okay. I, I'm assuming that was that she was the first one he saw. There may have been other reasons, but I I, I would not know. Okay, so you're about, how old do you think you were when you went to the second foster home? Uh, probably, I had to be about, uh, probably be about nine then. I was eight or nine, pretty close to nine because uh, I was adopted in 60. So uh, it would have to, and that was at age 10, so it had to be right prior to that because this came about very quickly. Okay, so you said you were adopted when you were 10. Was it just you adopted into the family, or did they take your brothers and sisters as well? Well, there was two families that were willing to adopt. One family wanted two girls, and that was the Walters family. They wanted two girls, and the Eubank family wanted two boys. And so me and my brother were adopted together as they were adopted, but they made a pact to put us together once a year so we could carry on that, 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 you know, brother-sister uh relationship so that as through life we'd be able to support each other uh, through whatever we were going through, you know. So I thought that was really a grand idea. Okay, and so this is in what city in Alabama at the time that you guys were adopted? Okay, we were adopted in Montgomery, but we lived and moved to Birmingham where my sisters lived and moved to Huntsville from Montgomery. So we lived in Birmingham, Alabama, and they lived in Huntsville. Okay, okay. So the Eubanks, they were a a much more pleasant uh, family environment than what you've experienced? Oh, absolutely. Let me tell you, I, I, I had died at that age and gone to heaven. Uh, first mm-hmm. thing to do was bring me a football, you know, as a mm-hmm. carry home uh, uh, type of thing to sit in the car as they drove us home in this old 53 Oldsmobile, mm-hmm. <laughs> which uh, later on became my first car. 
and, 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 and so we drove home and they were real nice. They stopped along the way and got us, uh, little snacks and burgers and everything. And I looked at my brother. I said, don't you mess nothing up. Mess this up. This is good, you know? And he, he just smiled at me. And, uh, uh-huh. so we got to a home and they had a real dog. Uh, Rudolph Val Spittlesburg was his name. And he was a little older, but he kept up with us boys pretty good. And, uh, my first Christmas there, oh my gosh. There was every toy. The whole house was full of toys. Even a Surrey that you drove around like a kitty car with a fringe on top. Oh, oh wow. Good. And they had, they took us to culture movies, uh, uh, damn Yankee, Oklahoma, Sound of Music. They introduced me to a world of music. They paid for lessons in all the instruments I love. They, uh, they, they encouraged us to, to, to do the best we could. And this was like daylight and dark from what I was used to. Uh-huh. And, uh, and, 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 you know, it was, it just all seemed like a big, big dream, you know, and, and it, it just was wonderful. I was with him, I guess, a total of about eight years until I joined the military. But during this time, you know, I became a teenager at one point and I started to experience that teenage rebellion. Uh-huh. And, uh, that, uh, that led to a lot of problems later down in life. Alrighty, Donald, we're going to take a quick break here, but we're going to talk about those troubled teenage years that most of us go through. Stay tuned. I'll be right back. This is Don't Box Me In on TalkZone.com. Here's Lana Reed. Hello. Welcome back. I've been speaking with Donald today and before the break we were talking about the uh, life changes and he's now in a more wonderful uh, environment uh, in, uh, he's been adopted now and you were just mentioning that even though um, you uh, walked into some wonderful foster care I mean adopted parents in a loving environment you still got a little rebellious as a teenager what kind of things were happening well, they, they, I guess the biggest thing was that they had a brand new house built up in Crestwood, which is on the side of Shades Mountain up there. It was a brand new house and, uh, it was built, uh, one of the few houses up there and we were considered to have, they were both accountants, okay? Mm-hmm. And, uh, they, they, they had the means and I had a nanny. And mm-hmm. the nanny is the one who would take care of us, uh, all the way through till we joined the military. And uh-huh. Jean was her name, and she was a wonderful lady. And she kept, she was always there to make sure that we made, uh, mind our P's and Q's. And if we didn't, we heard from mom and dad when they got home from work. Uh-huh. But uh, things were real strict. My dad, uh, being a this dad was a foster dad, uh, adopted dad was a officer in the army, and uh-huh. he was very regimented. I mean. He would go and wake up at four o'clock in the morning and go to the dining room table and sit down with a pad and say, okay, uh, wake up. That's the first thing on his list was to wake up, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, uh, then he would go down through his day and plan his day. He was a big football fan. And during the middle of the year, you know, January, or the first year, he would have TVs and radios all over the house to listen to all his games. But the regiment was you couldn't go in the living room because it's got white carpet, and white furniture. You uh, couldn't move a book off the shelf because it was numerically ordered in the position it should be. You didn't see anything on, on the table of the dressers because that belonged to Mama. And mm. the drawers were all folded. The socks were in one drawer, underwear one drawer, shoes on the shoe trees. And, of course, every, she got a brand-new suit. 
And we had a playroom downstairs, but everything had to be kept in a certain way, you know, and, and everything. And so as I grew up as a, uh, you know, from 10, 11, and 12, I started, you know, sprouting up a little bit because here I was getting fed good foods like asparagus and broccoli and mm-hmm. all these things I had never really experienced, you know. And then they would go out to eat. Uh, once a week when we went to buy groceries, we'd go to Red Lobster or Barbecue Place or uh, a Shawnee's or someplace to eat before we grocery shop. And uh, I later on became a sack boy for Bruno's there in Birmingham, and I did that for a while. Then I worked for my mom for a while. But during this period of time, I'm, uh, I'm uh, going to school. I'm experiencing different things like uh, interaction with other kids who had not lived through uh, what I had lived through, and I wasn't going to share it. I wasn't about to tell them that I'm reason I'm two years older and in your grade, which is I should be two years ahead, was because uh, uh, I didn't go to school, you know, and that was the way it was. Even when I played softball, the uh, uh, my parents, my dad became the scoutmaster, so he, we opened up a scouting troop. We went on camping trips. I learned a lot about that. I, I really appreciate scouting. Um, uh, then my father encouraged me in sports like football and everything else, along with my brother. But I seemed to gravitate toward running. Uh, I don't know. Maybe mm-hmm. running to save your life. But anyway, uh, I became quite uh, good at running back in, in grammar school, and that was the only thing I was noted for. I wasn't noted for anything else in my grammar school was I was the fastest, could jump higher, could outrun anybody. And a multiplication tag, the whole school could chase me and not touch me, you know, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. So that was the only claim to to uh, to any fame I had in grammar school was the fact that I could outrun everybody in grammar school. So that was the only thing I had. And uh, nothing else in grammar school seemed to uh, really stand out except when um, I think, um, uh or see, what was that? John Glenn made his space thing. I jumped out of class and ran down the principal's office and sat down there beside him with the TV because uh, Miss Sullivan will not let me go to see it. Didn't turn the TV on, but I had to see that. With every fiber of my body, I had to see that, you know? Mm-hmm. So I went down the principal's office and he looked at the teacher and says, I'll bring him back to class. Leave him alone. <laughs> gotcha. So, yeah, you know, there you go. But anyway, um, I rebelled because of the, 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 I could, I had to go to bed at a certain time, and then if I didn't make straight A's, then I got punished. And one of the times I made a, uh, a C in conduct, uh-huh. and a uh, new teacher, new teacher, new grade, and I asked her, I said, my mama's going to ground me for making a C in conduct. She says, look, girls are good, boys are fair. Uh-huh. That's it. That's my grading system, you know. No one is an A in conduct. Oh, and I, I told see. my mom that, and so I went home, and I got six weeks grounded, which means go to school, come home, go to my room, uh, go to eat supper, come back to my room and study, go to the bathroom, uh, washing, brush your teeth, go to bed. This went on for six weeks, uh-huh. and to me, that was excessive, and so I started rebelling, and when I did, I was getting bigger, and I was starting to uh, defend my brother when he would get a C, and I was, we became, we became, my mother became my enemy. Uh, but she was the one who did the whipping, you know, with big switches. And uh-huh. even to a point that the teacher would have to have the police come in and look at the whelps on his body. So I think mm-hmm. maybe it got her, to her. It was a little bit much for her. And she was kind of on her medication. But she, mm-hmm. they were not drinkers. They were not drinkers, though. Mm-hmm. So they don't, mm-hmm. have to be a, they don't have to be a drinker to be bad, you know. That's true. Or to have true. a bad moment. And I guess we brought out the worst in her. I don't know. 
Well, you know, I mean, I guess it would be hard dealing with some kids who, who've been through some, some challenges and, you know, so, I mean, yeah. I guess, yeah, it, it's a little difficult environment to, to deal with, but maybe you, I, I look back, I look back, Lana, and think maybe that some psychiatric, uh, or psychological uh, testing or something should have been done back then, you know? Well, I mean, I think back then people didn't, weren't fully aware of what was needed to integrate adopted kids into a family, especially kids coming from possibly the background that you could, that it probably would be best to give the the new parents and the kids some sort of therapy together. I mean, yeah. I, I don't think they were aware of that at that particular time. Well, anyway, I went on to high school and, uh, you know, I graduated from grammar school, went on to high school and entered my freshman year at Woodlawn. And uh, I stood out in track. Track was it, the 100 yard, the high jump and all that. And that was my claim to fame. Um, never had any uh, real problems with uh, high school, except I was smaller than everybody else. I was a freshman driving a car to school, you know, <laughs> and, and that was unusual there and uh, because I was a little older. And mm-hmm. uh, so, uh, you know, even though I mentally was had not matured to that to that age, I was at that grade level and, and I, I was there. And it was hard because I was a shy person, shy guy and real small, like 130 pounds in high school. And uh, I wasn't quite they tried to put me on a football team, but I, I could not handle it because you touch me and I'd fall over. I mean, 130 mm-hmm. pounds, but you try to catch me. Uh, there was no way. And so, uh, I went on to be the fastest there before I was a sophomore. And that was the only thing that really was good is I could run, you know, and, uh, that was it. And, uh, uh, and then later on, uh, things got a little hectic. My mother didn't like the girl I was dating, uh, because she was poor and she mm-hmm. lived in the wrong neighborhood and, uh, didn't have a dad. And mm-hmm. so my mother and dad did not want me associating with her. And just like she didn't want me associating with Alan's daughter, you know, the one that married the governor in Alabama, you know, okay. I didn't want me associating with her because she was Jewish and they didn't mm-hmm. think we'd work out, you know. But okay. anyway, uh, I got bad and rebelled and um, uh, I uh, quit school and joined the Navy because I was old enough, you know. Okay. And I joined yeah. the Navy and discovered beer. Okay. Discovered drinking. So you began drinking yourself, and um, you're 18, you're in the Navy, and you begin drinking yourself. So you start to get in trouble yourself then as well? Oh, absolutely. I think the first thing was when I went to Montgomery to get sent off, I went around and confronted all the people, my mother, my daddy, uh, Mr. Bose, all the people that I thought had made an error in the way they were doing things. And I told my mother, I says, I know what you've done, and I saw the way you were doing it. And I said, I just want you to know, when I sat outside that beer junk in the rain and you were in there doing your thing, I says, I mm-hmm. know what you were doing, and I and I hate you for that. And mm-hmm. she died two she died two weeks later. I don't know what of. Oh man! But yeah, it was bad. I felt bad then. And then my father, he uh, eventually went to a mental institution and died. Mm-hmm. And uh, I talked to several uncles, and, and said they've since died. And I talked to Mr. Bose. I went on her porch uh, along with my my first second wife at that time, and confronted her later on down the road. But I did catch her and told her I knew what happened to the Christmas present. She just cried, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, but I had to. I had to let them know that I knew. So here yeah. I am in the navy. Here I'm in the navy now, and I discovered booze and getting in trouble. 
<laughs> All right, we're gonna take we're gonna take our last uh, break of the day. But when we come back, we're gonna talk about this navy and this trouble that you got on, into and where it led you to from there. Stay tuned. This is Don't Box Me In on TalkZone.com. Here's Lana Reed. Welcome back. Welcome back to Don't Box Me In. I've been speaking with Donald Eubank today, who has an amazing life story. Uh, Donald, I want to ask you, um, before the break we were talking about you joined the Navy, and um, you know life's still a little difficult. Somewhere around this point, uh, you go to prison and end up in Mexico. How, how did that happen? Well, what happened, while I was in the military, I got to drinking a lot. And then as I went through duty stations, it seemed to progress. I would end up doing the thing that I thought would not uh, ever affect me, which was drinking and getting in fights and, and becoming a, uh, a raging bull. Uh, mm-hmm. I uh, was uh, up in Newfoundland, up at Argentia, and uh, it got to be where uh, the drinks were cheap and uh the Marines were available, and so it got to be that every night I went to the club, I had a different Marine I had to fight. Mm. And they were just they were just back from Vietnam. And, uh, of course, my brother was over there, so I was TAD, uh, uh, different duty stations overseas, but not over in Vietnam. So I worked with EOD and AOE Explosive Ordnance, and my job was to work with pyrotechnics. So I had a kind of a nice job. But every night I'd go and I'd get drunk and I loved to dance. Oh, I could dance. I could dance all <laughs> night long. And so I didn't care. As long as the girl was cute, I didn't care if I got to know her or not. As long as she could dance, that was the only thing she had to do. Because <laughs> uh, I didn't trust women anyway, you know. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, I danced through uh, two and a half years up there. And finally, uh, after I had uh, the whole Marine Corps uh, all over me and I'd become buddies with 90% of them because... Nobody ever got really hurt. You know, we just fought, and, you know, it was just a thing, you know. Mm-hmm. But nobody ever got really hurt. And so they finally went ahead and general discharged me out of the military for the good of the Navy, you know. But I got mm-hmm. an honorable discharge. I did a great job. I had good work proficiency. I just got in too many fights and wouldn't leave the alcohol alone. Mm-hmm. So I came home, and uh, I, I ran across some people I had known back before I went in the military, and they were doing some shady things like taking credit cards and cash and stuff and selling stuff and buying stuff. So I, I, I said, well, it sounds, I don't have a job, so let me try this. And I, I tried this, that, and the other. And, uh, you know, I, I, but before I did that, we're, we're, I'm missing about a, um, a four or five year period there. And, and let me just make it capsulate real quick. I got out of the Navy. I came home, straightened up, went to work at a supply company, went back to college at UAB. Uh, drove a taxi after college and got up at five and went to work and drove. Met my first wife, Valerie, and we got married. And, uh, then we, 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 everything seemed to be okay. And then I went back to drinking. And when I did that, everything went to pot. Okay. So I started okay. experiencing sales. I went into sales and everything. And I was doing real good in sales, uh, automobiles, uh, mobile homes. Uh, and then I did a, a stretch on radio in Birmingham, WAQY. And uh, they're no longer there, I don't think. But anyway, I did a stretch here as a DJ and personality there. I worked with a lot of musicians. And uh, anyway, I was drinking through this and, and thought I was the greatest salesman there was. You know, I even got awards in Atlanta from Rollins, you know, for, for sales. And I was innovative. I was thinking. But I was drinking. And what the drinking did is led me to where I got busted 
uh, me and two guys were driving along, and we kicked him out and took the car to Florida, and they charged us for stealing the car. That went for about a year, and then they finally prosecuted and put me on probation. That mm-hmm. led my downfall. I got put on probation. Then the guy was making a deal with a, uh, a business owner to do some modifications on buildings and contracting the work out, and he told me I could not deal with that kind of money. I said, what do you mean deal with that kind of money? I'm not touching the money. All I'm doing is this and the other. I don't know what's money got to do with it. Well, we don't think on probation you should deal in big, these big, high, high, you know, high-end things, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, because I've been sales manager, office manager, new car manager, every kind of manager you can think of. So I was doing fine, and I was able to talk with the people. I had cultured a little bit. So anyway, uh, I, I, he told me I couldn't do it, so I went down drunk and cussed him out. He violated. <laughs> I got a year up in Kentucky. Uh, no walls. I mean, you know, you could walk out. And mm-hmm. uh, Kentucky, Lexington, Kentucky, got a year up there at ARC. And then I come back, and uh, people said, well, you can't get a job because you, you've been in prison now. And so mm-hmm. one thing led to another. The next thing I know, I uh, uh, got involved with um, uh, white-collar crime. I got involved with uh, writing checks for a company because I was the office manager. And then the, sales, the new car manager would take the checks and then turn around and spend it for what he wasn't supposed to, and it came back on me. So they gave me uh, three years for that. And they sent me to Mount Meigs or uh, someplace like that. And then I, I was there uh, for a while, and I decided uh, I didn't want to be there anymore. And so I walked away. Just uh, walked away from jail. To, I, never had to, I never had to climb a fence. I always talked my way out, okay? And subsequently, I got five years for that. And then I went and took my grandma's pistol and got five years more for that. And they found that, put me in jail, released me accidentally. How? I don't know. But they released <laughs> me, and I walked, and then I, I ran to Mexico. And uh Caltech truck driver going there, and uh, I was still drinking and going through delusions, you know. And so mm-hmm. I got down to Mexico, and the next thing I know, all the Mexicans are chasing me because I was Caucasian. I was mm-hmm. in the wrong part of Mexico. And so I literally outran everybody. And finally, uh I was able to somehow uh, get myself back to Alabama. They picked me up, and then they put me back to Mexico. Somewhere else, I escaped again, okay? Mm-hmm. And then I got back, and I said, I'm going to settle down here. So I went back to college, and for about three years there, well, actually two years at Alex City State Junior College, because that was the way the government, BBNX Navy, I could get money coming in, right? Good. So okay. they would pay me to go to school. And so I would end up owning the maintenance shop, the music department, and uh, having some craft shops. And so this was a way of me surviving in the penal system. And besides, I played football, and I was big enough then, and I wasn't afraid to get a bone broke, you know. Gotcha. So, and I was tough with that. So, anyway, I went ahead and escaped a total of six times, uh, Alabama, Florida, uh, Kentucky. And finally, I finally, they finally sent me to the bottom down at Atmore on the work mm-hmm. line. And I had to do all of the rest of it there. So, every morning at 5 o'clock, I was up. I was on the farm. I was digging, picking, walking. And I was out until sunset, and I came in. And I said, this is a long stretch here. A total of about <laughs> 10 years, you know. And wow. so I, I heard, I, I heard, I saw, I've been through everything. I did not, uh, did not, uh, succumb to any of the drug stuff. I knew to stay away from the drugs, alcohol, and the, uh, homosexuality down there. I was always the one who, who owned the band, who was musically talented enough to put myself in a good position that I could be a benefit to the, uh, to the institution versus being a, uh, a liability, you know? Gotcha, and so gotcha. I always placed, I had to think. No, thinking was what saved my butt. Being able yes. to think quickly. 
So anyway, after the, after that part, I know we're getting short on time, so I'm going to move quickly along. So I came quickly along and back, and I, I got out of prison. I come back and went to the Salvation Army. said, look, guys, I have no job. I have no money. Uh, can I can I work for you? So they let me work there. I became assistant manager of one of the, their stores. I stayed there, and then I uh, went to one of the dances, the AA dances, which I was going to AA. Met a girl. She wanted to go back to college. I said, well, I'll go to college with you, you know. And so finally we got <laughs> to date and got to go together. So me and her went back to college, and after a number of years, we got married, and we became, uh, we set for the board of addiction therapists in Florida, and we became addiction therapists. We, she opened up a private practice. I did a few things till then. Then I went in private practice with her, passed my state boards, and they didn't want to know this the correct answer. They wanted to know that you, how, the competency, how you got there. So mm-hmm. the answers were not, you know. So finally, I went ahead. We were doing psychotherapy in the University of New York. I got a uh, degree in, in, in hypnotherapy and psychotherapy. And uh, from there, we were doing tapes. She was traveling around, and that all went real well. Then uh, finally, I, I, I kind of drifted a little bit, got back to a drink, you know, and I finally uh, got divorced, but we're still good friends today. Susan, you were great. Thank you very much. I appreciate you saving my life. And during that time, I met God, and God turned around and told me as I was walking away from the beach one night with totally nothing, you know, there's better days coming, Donna. And I believed that. I believed it and felt the joy of God there. And I'm going to tell you what. My strength is in what I believe, and I believe that God and my guardian angels have watched over me since I was that little baby. And I tell you, I'm not done yet. Today I live in Hamilton, Alabama. I do radio programs and TV programs. I'm on Casting 360. I think I have enough talent to really work on some of these things. Right now, I'm retired. My wife works now. She's a great woman. Debbie's great. She's one who's, who's been right there about me for 17 years, which I do appreciate it. And for those out there, the people who have these problems that they're going through and think, oh, my God, it's bad, believe me, I see people today, even with the soup kitchen I opened up here a year ago, to feed the hungry and the needy and the people passing through. A dream of mine is to feed people without charging them. And, and, mm-hmm. and I, I still today believe in, in that people make the difference. It's not how much you've got. I have been miserable in a brand-new convertible in Florida making quite a bit of money and been miserable as I can be because my heart wasn't in the right place. You are your heart. Do the right things. The right things happen. There's never there's, The only time there's no solution is when there's no problem. These are my mottos, Mana. There you go. There you go. Donald, I really hate, you know, that we had to rush through this. It seems like, you know, oh. we could sit and talk for like two or three hours here. You've got so much <laughs> to say and so much that happened in your life that I think people need to hear. But my hours always go so fast, so, so fast. I want to I want to thank you for oh. hanging out with me today and sharing what small portion that I could share. Your life story is such an inspiration. Well, I'll tell you, I, my, uh, my ex-wife and my wife today want me to write a book and, and title it something like, uh, don't box me in. No. Oh, that's too cute. Box, you know? <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe somebody would like to write a book, you know, a ghostwriter, or maybe make it into a movie because there are so many, many things that are quite exciting. Uh, the FBI in Washington DC with me. Oh my God, that was a real trip. But I, I, I thank you so much for having me. I've enjoyed going and reliving this with you. And I hope it inspires somebody out there to keep doing the right thing, you know, in life and, 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 and thank God for that we are here. There you go. So whenever you get the book ready, I'll be glad to have you back on and we can finish the second part of the story that we had to (laughs) rush through there. But I wish you uh, much success and everything that you dream of in the years ahead of you. Thank you and God bless you, Lana.
There you go. Well, that's all for this week's show. I'll be back next week at the same time. Until then, remember when it comes to your dreams, the words can't and won't should never slow you down. There's always space to change and to grow. Don't be boxed in. Live your very best life. I am your host, Lana Reed, and you can visit my website, lanareed.com. Until next time, I look forward to connecting with you. 